0: Um, If you want to grab your Bibles, open to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. We're actually still in the series on Exodus, but you're turning to the book of Numbers, so let me explain that a little bit, because uh, when we're looking at the idea of Exodus, we're not really looking so much at the book of Exodus as we are at the event of the Exodus. And so when I say the event of the Exodus, what I mean is that the Israelites enslaved in Egypt were seen by God. God stepped in and through grace redeemed them, uh, brought them out of Egypt and led them to the promised land. And that journey to the promised land actually goes further than the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus ends while they're still on the journey. And so we're going to pick up the journey in the middle of the book of Numbers in order to get kind of all the way to the border of the promised land. Because if you were with us way back, I don't even remember when, it would probably be close to a year ago now, um, when we looked at Exodus chapter 13, we looked at the idea that when God led the people out of Egypt, he, he said specifically to Moses, I'm not going to lead you the easy way. The, the promised land's really close. I'm not going to lead you that way. Instead, I'm going to take you the long way around so that you can be formed and prepared and you can uh, be ready to go into the promised land. And so an argument can be made that if you track the, the moment that Israel walked out of Egypt all the way until they went to the border of the promised land, that's God's plan for formation. That's the way that he, plan, he forms us. And so we've looked at this principle over especially the last several months that God is not just interested in our freedom, but he's interested in our formation. Meaning, he doesn't just free us from sin, but his desire is that we would be formed into his image because we've been freed from sin. And so that's the journey that we've been on, and that's where I want to continue today. So, a couple weeks ago, Mike Duggar looked at the beginning of uh, Numbers chapter 11, particularly from an artistic perspective, which I loved. He can look at that in a, through a lens that I can't see, and that idea of the difference between the magnificent and the mundane. And that mundaneness of the daily, one day after another, uh, collecting the manna and eating the manna and going through the process of following the Spirit of God. Like it's just a one step after another kind of thing. And in the middle of that mundane journey, there's this faithfulness that God calls us to. And that's a really important lens to see Numbers 11 through. But today I want to look at a different lens as we get to the back half of Numbers 11. We're actually going to look at the majority of the, uh, the chapter in order to kind of see the flow of the story. And I want to look at it through the lens of abundance. Uh, in 2004, there was a psychologist named Barry Schwartz who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. It's a a fascinating book, a prophetic book, really, because uh, if you go back and read it now, uh, much of what he said in 2004 is far more true than it is right now. But the subtitle is the part I want to dig into. The subtitle is How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us from Satisfaction. How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction. And and the heart of what he's saying is going to be uh, before you on the screen. Uh, Schwartz says this, we get what we say we want only to discover that what we want doesn't satisfy us to the degree that we expect. We get what we say we want only to find out that what we want doesn't satisfy us to the degree that we would expect. Why is that? Well, Schwartz used a series of New Yorker cartoons, which I think is a brilliant way to talk about anything. And so I'm going to try to do a little bit of that this morning as we uh, walk, walk through this idea. But basically what Schwartz was saying is that um, when there is uh, more choice, when there's abundance, when we have all kinds of uh, stuff to choose from, our expectations raise, and they don't just raise in proportion to the amount of choice that we have, but they raise exponentially. So as we have more and more choice... Our expectations get higher and higher, and it's far more likely that we're disappointed because we think it could be better than it was. So this is a great cartoon to start with. Uh, if it says you can't read it, it says everything was better back when everything was worse, right? Like that's, isn't that the case? Like, you just, you, like I liked it better when it was like simpler and bad, not as, not as good as it is now. But, but it's, it, there, there's this challenge of as our expectations go up, we increasingly are disappointed. So let me give you a real practical example. Um, if you know me at all, you know I wear jeans pretty much all the time. I've been wearing jeans since I was a little kid. I only really wear jeans every once in a while. It gets so hot, I have to wear shorts. That's pretty much the option. Jeans or shorts. And so when I was a kid, every year we'd go buy jeans. But when I was a kid, there were only so many options. Uh, two, actually. There, there were jeans and then there were the dreaded husky jeans, right? Those were the two options. That's all you had. You had regular and you had husky. And what happens when you're a kid is that you, you, you grow out, then you grow up, then you grow out, then you grow up, right? And so on the years that I was growing out more than up, then it was husky. And then the other years I was regular. And that was all I had to choose from. And, and so what happened was you, you'd get those jeans and they would be the only choice, regular or husky, and, and they would not fit that great. Because there were only two choices, you fit pick whatever fit the best, and then they, they'd be kind of uncomfortable, and you'd start wearing them, and you'd wear them for like a month or six months or a year, and just about the time they got comfortable, they didn't fit anymore, and you'd start the process over again, right? That's If you had jeans back in the 70s and 80s, that was the way it worked. That was just the way life was. But now, buying jeans is a whole different experience. Like, I don't know if you've gone to buy jeans lately, but... Man, you have options. you have slim fit jeans. you have skinny jeans well, all of them are skinny jeans on me because I fill them out. but you, know, you have slim fit jeans, you have skinny jeans, you have loose fit jeans, you have uh, relaxed fit you have, uh, you have slim leg you have straight leg and then you have tapered leg, and then you have uh, boot cut and, and you have acid wash and you have stone wash, and you can pay extra money to have holes put in them already, which is uh, really a Fascinating idea. Uh, so so many different things. But see, here's what happens. You go and you, you go through this whole process and you buy a pair of jeans, and objectively, they are better than what I had when I was a kid because they fit so much better. But I'm always disappointed. Why? Because with that many choices, they should be perfect. And they're never perfect. See, when I was a kid. When they didn't fit right, I know who was to blame. Levi Strauss. That's, the, that's who's to blame, right? They, they made the jeans. They made them wrong. It's their fault. But now when they don't fit, who's to blame? Me. Because I didn't take the time to find the right stuff, or I didn't pick the right thing, or if I look back on it, I probably should have gotten the acid wash, not the stone wash, and why'd I pick extra money for the holes, and all the stuff, right? Like, you, you, you go through this process, and you think, like, it could be better, Uh, Here's a cartoon to illustrate that. It all looks so great, I can't wait to be disappointed. Right? That's how we live our life. We look at the world around us and we say, man, it's so incredible, I'm sure I'm going to be disappointed. Because we live now in a world where there's so much abundance, so much choice, that we're constantly disappointed. Now, import that principle into the spiritual realm. If I'm determining that I'm going to follow after Jesus then that pathway is more narrow and there's a specific way that I'm called to live and I need to determine whether I'm willing to follow that way or not. So here's one of my very favorite New Yorker cartoons. Well, actually they are written in stone. I think that's, that's really nice. Uh, so so there's, there's law, there's truth, there's a way that God has laid out life before me and I can choose to walk in that way. And that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about freedom. So counterintuitively, freedom is actually the narrow way of Jesus because I am able to, I get to, live the way that I have been designed so that I would thrive. I live in line with how God's made me to be. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, defines freedom this way. He says, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. So Jesus changes us so that our desire is to do what God's laid out for us. But when we get frustrated along the way, when we, we feel like oh, this doesn't really fit or it kind of chased against what I want, the, the intent is for us to change, not for the law to change. But what happens when we define freedom the other way? with the idea of the culture of abundance, where we have any choice that we want. Well, here's a great cartoon that lays that one out, the do-it-yourself kit for the Ten Commandments, just like chisel your own law, right? Like, just make your own. And what happens in many of our lives is that we want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to determine what's best. So rather than allowing God to determine what's best for us as our creator— we try to remove that from him, and we create the, the pathway that we, we want. But what happens when we do that? We get disappointed. We get frustrated. Because now, given all of those options, we've chosen the wrong thing. Because the bottom line is this. God is better at being God than you are. I, I always want to be God, But when I step into that role, I find out I'm actually no good at it. That's the lens I want you to listen to this story through. Because it's a complicated story that's going to weave together two different storylines into one narrative. And the author of Numbers is trying to get us to see the heart behind both the Israelites and Moses himself as they were seeking to follow after God. So I want you to listen. Bill's going to come and read for us the majority of the chapter. It's a longer section. I want you to imagine in your head this narrative unfolding as Bill reads uh, Numbers 11 starting in verse 4 through to the end of the chapter.
1: Now the rabble that was among them had strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said oh that we had meat to eat we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers the melons the leeks the onions and the garlic But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. <laughs> Boy. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots. Blah, 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 blah. And made cakes with it, and the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, every one at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? To the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, Kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate for yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am, number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And, and a young man ran out and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then. A wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail, Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, about fifty bushels, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kimbroth Hata'eva. Because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hata'eva, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth.
0: You're good. That's fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at this odd story that can seem so removed from our lives, would you help us to see what it is that you're saying to us? From the very beginning, we've recognized that this story is our story and that as you free us and form us, this model of freeing Israel and forming Israel is part of the way that you do it. And so, God, would you help us to hear your truth and hear your word as we look at your scriptures today? Would you guide my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but rather the words that come from your spirit would remain, they would penetrate our hearts and change us, shape us. God, our desire is to be more like you, and so would you illuminate those areas where we are stubborn or holding back and instead give us the grace to open our hands to trust and to be shaped and so do this work we pray in jesus name amen amen So this is an odd story, two stories really, uh, being woven together. Um, so I, I want to look at the, the stories because um, they, they kind of play off of one another. So I want to look at first two different kinds of complaints that you see in this passage, and then I want to look at two different kinds of solutions or responses to those complaints, and then finally a pathway to joy that leads out of that. So two kinds of complaints, two kinds of responses, and a pathway to joy. Uh, the first thing that you notice as you're listening is that um, although we tend to think of the Israelites as the complainers, they were the ones who started to complain, they weren't the only ones complaining in this passage. Um, Israel and Moses are both complaining. In fact, uh, if you just count, uh, do a word count, Moses is complaining far more than Israel is complaining in this uh, this narrative. Israel's complaint, the short complaint, about not having uh, anything other than manna to eat, arouses the anger of God. And Moses' complaint about how difficult it is to lead the people arouses the mercy of God. And so I want to look at why that is. What, what happened and uh, why does it happen that way? But the first thing I want you to notice is that the original readers would have been putting this in the context as the overall Exodus story. And the first thing they would notice is that um, the complaining of Israel provides a fascinating parallel To uh, their slavery in Egypt. They're looking back to their slavery in Egypt, but what you'll notice if you read through the book of Exodus is the Israelites didn't complain when they were in Egypt. They groaned under Pharaoh's burden, but they never complained. Why didn't they complain? Because Pharaoh wasn't listening, right? Like, he didn't care. Like, complain all you want. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to continue to make you do the stuff you're going to do. So complaining is actually part of what it means to be free. They're complaining because God actually listens and God actually cares. And that's a significant part of this story. Complaining in itself wasn't the problem. There's a um, Hebrew scholar by the name of Roy Gain, and he uh, talks about, there, back in the 80s, there was an immigrant who was given permission to immigrate from Soviet Russia into Israel. And at that time, it was very rare for anybody to be able to immigrate out of Soviet Russia. There was a lot of uh, mystery as to what was going on kind of behind the borders. And so as he landed in Jerusalem, a reporter met him and said, hey, um, I just would love to ask you a few questions about Russia. Could you tell us about life in Russia? And he said, I do not complain. And he said, okay, um, well, tell us about your job. What's it like to work in Russia? And he said, I do not complain. So what, what about like housing? What's, what's housing like and food like? And he said, I do not complain. And the reporter's getting fed up and he's like, if you don't complain about life in Russia, why'd you come to Israel? He said, because in Israel, I can complain. <laughs> Complaining is actually Part of what it means to be free, the, the freedom of the people is actually represented by the fact that they can complain. The problem is what kind of complaint. So if you remember when manna first showed up on the scene, it's back in Exodus chapter sixteen. And if you are somebody who writes in your Bible, you can put just a margin in, uh, or in in the margin there beside Numbers chapter eleven, Exodus sixteen four. In Exodus sixteen four, God said to Moses, manna will be a test for the people of Israel. Now that test w- happened right away. Will they do what I said to do? So I said to go out in the morning, collect only enough for the day, and then use that during the day, and then go tomorrow because there'll be more. Will they do it the right way? Will they collect on Friday twice as much so that on Saturday, the Sabbath, they would not have to collect any? Will they obey me? A- and what we find in both of those instances is no, they didn't obey, they, they failed the test. But that test is ongoing. And so as they continue to have manna, they're continuing to fail the test. Uh, one scholar calls their rejection of manna the rebellion of Israel against the provision of God. That they're, just, they're, they're, they're not simply complaining, they're rebelling. They're turning against God. So what's happening is God is providing for them what they need. And rather than even talking to God about it, They're talking to one another, grumbling amongst themselves in a way that is uh, divisive and in a way that is rebellious, but their heart is, we would be better if we were in charge, if we were God, we would be better than he would be. We'd give people meat. We wish that we were back in Egypt where at least we had meat. Moses' complaint is a totally different kind of complaint. So the Israelites are complaining to one another about God. Moses is complaining directly to God, and his complaint is, God, as I walk in your path, as I do the thing that you've laid out in front of me, it's really hard. I don't think I can do it. In fact, um, th- these people are so hard to lead, I would rather die than have to lead these people myself. So, so it's, a, it's a, a strong complaint. He's still very, very frustrated. But that frustration works itself out in coming before God and saying, uh, God, as he comes straight to him, I need help. I I need you to do something. So both complaints, but one is a complaint before God about help from God, and one is a complaint about God to other people, and the the intent is to usurp God, to, to stand in the place of God, to say, I would be better than him. So those two kinds of complaints generate two totally different kinds of responses. We could dig really deeply into both of these. I'm just going to try to hit them at the surface today to try to uh, draw a contrast between the two. So God responds to Moses' complaint by saying, I'm going to have, I want you to gather 70 elders. We're going to bring all of the elders together, and I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them. And the same spirit that I placed on you, I'm going to place on them. And they're going to be able to share the burden with you. And so he gathers the elders together, and um, the, the Spirit of God pours out upon them. They begin to prophesy as a, a signal or a sign that the Spirit of God is on them. And there's two guys, uh, we, we're not told why this happens, but two guys, Eldad and Medad, stay back in camp. So they don't do what Moses says. Moses says, come out here, and the Spirit of God's going to come upon you. Those two guys decide to stay back in camp, and the Spirit of God still falls upon them. And they begin to prophesy. Now there's a lot going on here, but the key thing I want you to see is, this is a a reminder to us and to Moses that Moses doesn't control the Spirit, he's controlled by the Spirit. That God is the one who's doing the work. And so even though they didn't obey Moses, the Spirit of God still fell upon them. So God responds to Moses' complaint by giving him the help that he needs, by bringing people alongside but the Israelites' complaint is a whole different thing. So um, God's response to the Israelites' complaint is uh, really um, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, and it's primarily because I I don't naturally think it's uh, right for me to think of God as sarcastic, but this is really good. Like, it's, it's really good. So the way he says this, it, it, so he says this is in verse 18, you shall not eat one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. You know how many times I'm going to say that to my kids? Like, if I could create, like, if I could do that, like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, that's great. He just says, you, you want meat? Oh, you're getting meat. I'll give you some meat. Uh, here Here we go. And so as he says that, Moses is over to the side listening, and he's like, um, uh, like, where are we getting that? Right? Like, God, I don't, I I hear you, but I just don't know about that. Because remember, 600,000 men, likely with women and children, we're talking close to 2 million people, are going to eat meat in the desert for a month. Moses is like, it's a great line, God, but I don't know if you can back this one up, right? Like, I just don't, I don't think you got this. And God says, is my arm too short? And then he actually does it. Now, there's all kinds of fascinating stuff here. We'll look at it a little bit during the uh, podcast this week uh, of what's happening like, historically, environmentally, and all of that kind of stuff. But this is a phenomenon that happens in that area that happened very specifically with uh, the word of God, where literally millions of quail, so I, I try to picture this in your head. Millions of quail are migrating through over the period of four, five, six days, and God creates a wind that knocks the quail down. So uh, we tend to read it like they, they were down on the ground. They were just like dead falling out of the sky. But, but most scholars believe what happened is that the wind knocked them down till so they were about the cu- two-cubit level, so about uh, chest high. They, they were flying chest high. And as they came into camp, they're flying chest high, and around two million people... Are chasing two or three or four million quail a day around, grabbing them out of the air, breaking their necks, and slaughtering them right there. Like, try to picture that in your head. Like, this is chaos. This is craziness. Like, millions of people are chasing, and some of you are like, and that is terrifying. I watched The Birds by Hitchcock, and I am not, like, I am not for that, right? Um, but this is crazy. I mean, the, like, all these birds are flying right there, and they, they gather enough that they can eat, over the course of a couple days, they gather enough that they can eat for a month, every family. Like, this is, this is unbelievable. All these birds are flying. They're grabbing the birds out of the sky, cracking their necks, but but while the meat was still in their teeth, what a great way to say it, right? When it was still between their teeth, a plague hits. Theologians are divided as to exactly what happened. I tend to lean on the side um, that some theologians say, which is that there was a form of food poisoning that was happening because they were so aggressive about eating the quail. They didn't prepare it the appropriate way. That seems to fall in line with the way I see the nation of Israel, uh, the way I see my own heart all too often. I want what I want so badly, right? Um, So it could be that they ate the quail too quickly and got sick and died from that. Or it could be that God just sent a plague. But whatever happened, a bunch of them got exactly what they wanted and died on account of it. When God responds to us, We need to be people who have our eyes open to the way that God's responding. Because sometimes our complaint lines up with Moses' complaint. God, I desire to walk down the path that you've laid out before me. I want to follow after you. It's just really hard. I need strength. I need help. And sometimes God brings people alongside of us and supports us. Sometimes if you look at 1 Kings chapter 19, you see uh, the prophet Elijah who is worn out after this confrontation with all of the prophets of Baal and King Ahab and Jezebel, and he's uh, depressed and suicidal, and God meets him. He doesn't bring people alongside of him but but he meets him by his spirit. He gives them what he needs. He gives them food and drink and encouragement. So sometimes that's the way that God responds. God responds as we pray in line with His character. He comes alongside of us often uh, through either physical resources of people or sometimes just the spirit coming alongside and encouraging us. But there are times where we, like Israel, pray the rebellious kind of complaint prayers. Again, complaining is not the issue, but we complain about who God is. And sometimes God, forming us, gives us what we want. Maybe you've had those situations where you, you want a certain relationship that you know is not God's plan, and after a while he gives it to you. Or you want a certain job, or you want a certain uh, material possession, or you want to embrace your sexuality in a certain way, or you want to pursue after this thing, whatever it is, and God gives you what you want. And after a period of time, that giving you what you want can be really bad for you and even fatal. Sometimes God turns us over to what we want. Now, the challenge is we see these two kinds of responses in Numbers chapter 11, God coming alongside of Moses, encouraging him through his spirit, God giving Israel exactly what they asked for in a way that is actually judgment, not blessing. And that's where the story ends. So where's the pathway? Well, 2,000 years later or so, the Apostle Paul is writing to a variety of different churches. And I think it's easy for us to forget that Jesus and all of the apostles were utilizing the Old Testament as the Scripture. That's the the Bible that they knew. And as they utilized that as the Scripture, I think Paul offers a pathway. So I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 4. And as you get to Philippians chapter 4, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to want to start in the back and start to flip forward. Uh, There's a, a section of the New Testament toward the back of the Bible Uh, That is a bunch of different letters that apostles wrote to uh, people and to churches. And this is the letter to the church at Philippi that uh, the apostle Paul wrote. And he wrote it when he was in prison. So Paul's in a bad place at this point. He's in a Roman prison. He doesn't have much. Prison is not like it uh, is like today in the U.S. where you get a bunch of meals and you get some things provided for you. Paul would have been locked up. And he would be reliant on people coming in and bringing him things. And so sometimes he would go with very, very little because he he wouldn't have any food to eat or he wouldn't have anything brought in for him. Um, And and he would be stuck there. And in the midst of prison, this is what Paul writes. I'm going to start in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Many of you probably know that last verse, you probably maybe have it on a coffee cup somewhere or on a little like, you know, dish towel or whatever, um, and, and most of us think of that as this like expression of the strength of God, but when we read it in context, what Paul's saying is, I, I through the power of God, am able to survive with anything, whether it's just a little or whether it's a lot, w- whether God gives me all that I need or whether it seems like I don't have anything that I need, I, I know Through the strength of God, I know how to survive. And he actually uses the term secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I've learned the secret of how to handle need. I've learned the secret of how to handle hunger. He actually says, you're going to need this secret for when you have too much and when you have too little. You're going to need this secret if you're going to be content with abundance or need. You still need the secret. What's the secret? Well, l- let me tell you uh, the story of two uh, dinners, and maybe that will uh, help illustrate it a bit. Uh, about 25 years ago or so, I was regularly going to New York City for a variety of different things, work-related stuff, and um, part of my trips to New York City, every once in a while, we would go to a restaurant right outside of Times Square called Carmine's. Maybe you've heard of uh, Carmine's, famous restaurant in Times Square. Uh, The greatest thing about Carmine's was ordering the fried calamari appetizer. If you've never gone to Carmine's and ordered the fried calamari appetizer, I don't know, it's been 20 years, I don't know what it looks like now. But then they brought it to the table on a meat platter and it was like mounded it was like, it was so much. I just thought, there's not that much calamari in the world. Like, and they're like, they're, they're at that table and that table and that table. Like they have, they have the market on calamari. I'm just telling you, they got it everywhere. And there's tons and tons and tons. Like for, for my like early 20s, I was thinking, this might be heaven. This is Italian heaven, at least. This is like, this is amazing. Like, it's just like so much calamari. It was so great. And so you'd, you'd eat and eat and eat and eat and other people would eat and you'd share. It was the, it was the best. Well, a couple years later, We were given a gift certificate for the Left Bank downtown. Maybe you've been to the Left Bank before. If you've ever been to the Left Bank, you probably took out a second mortgage to be able to pay the bill, right? We had a $100 gift certificate and had to add a significant amount of money for two of us to be able to eat. That's not my normal restaurant. But anyway, we went to uh, the Left Bank, and we ordered the fried calamari appetizer, Well, let me just say that what they bring you at the left bank does not compare with what they bring you at Carmine's, right? So it was like a little like saucer thing, and there may have been a couple pieces on there, or maybe we cut them, I can't really remember. But whatever happened, um, let's just say it did not fully satisfy any of my hunger. It was like, okay, that tasted like something, let's keep going, right? Like that was kind of the, and and it was, look, it it was incredibly good tasting. I just would have liked a human-sized portion instead of a, whatever that was. I don't know. Uh, so, so both, both appetizers, um, one mounded, one this tiny little plate. But appetizers, any good appetizer is meant to prepare you for the meal, not to be the meal itself. So whether you're having all of this at Carmine's or whether you're having the tiny little pieces at the left bank, the point is that you still want the meal. So at Carmine's, you can only, even like the 23-year-old version of myself, you can only eat so much fried calamari. Like at some point it's like, can we get something else here? Like, how much squid can one person consume, really? Like, it's time for, it's time for more food, right? And at the left bank, it was definitely time for more food. right? <laughs> like, please, and then afterwards we went for pizza or whatever, I don't remember. Uh, but it, like, there, there's, there's a longing for something else. Appetizers are always meant to point to the main dish. What's the secret of living in abundance or in need? Recognizing that life is an appetizer. Recognizing that what we've been given by God, as beautiful and sometimes bountiful as it is, is never meant to fully satisfy us. And if we can get that mindset... Now, regardless of whether in plenty or in need, whether uh, abundance or whether scarcity, I have what I need because I'm looking towards something else. I'm looking towards something greater. So the problem we have is when we confuse the appetizer for the meal and we chase after it as though it will satisfy us, we will always be chasing after it trying to be satisfied. So whether that's uh, a great coffee or a great relationship, Rather, whether that's a, uh, a level of bank account balance or whether it's a, a certain uh, kind of material possession, whether it's a position you're going after, uh, whether it's some sort of influence that you have, wh- whatever that thing is, if you think that it will ultimately satisfy you, you will always be chasing your tail. You're always going to be trying to find it. But if we can get to the place of recognizing all of the goodness of life, and sometimes life is beautiful, and, uh, and, and there's these uh, perfect, it seems, pictures of the grace and the creativity and the beauty of God, but they're only ever intended to be appetizers. They're supposed to be pointing me towards something else. The problem the Israelites had was not that they were tired of manna. I'd be tired of manna too after a year. So would you. The problem was not they were tired of manna. The problem was they were tired of God. They were tired of him leading them. They were tired of him providing for them. And they wanted what they could provide for themselves. In the same way, we need to discern in our own hearts and walk that line between complaining, which God invites us to do, telling him what's true. Uh, God desires for us to bring our requests to him. And, by the way, if you hide them rather than speaking them before God, it's not like he's fooled, right? Like, oh, you didn't say that out loud. I didn't know that. (laughs) He knows. But when we bring them before him and we recognize all that we have is just the appetizer pointing to the main dish, we're able to be satisfied in what we have. But when we desire to be God himself, the problem is not that we're tired of manna. The problem is we're tired of God. And so as we draw our hearts back and as we wrap up for today, I want to encourage you to listen to where the Spirit is telling you uh, you're you're crossing over that line, you're coming up against that border. You, You need to trust me. Or that thing... That's becoming the main dish, and it's only ever intended to be an appetizer. It's supposed to point you to something. And so don't try to be fully satisfied in that. So I just wanna take a couple minutes and allow the Spirit to speak. So we'll just take a couple minutes of quiet as the team uh, can come, and they can get ready to lead us in response. I'm just gonna ask you to kinda set your stuff to the side and uh, settle yourself, close your eyes, and uh, just take a minute to listen to the Spirit because all of us are in different places and he's speaking to all of us in different ways and so let's let, let's listen to what he has to say to us as we come before him. And so Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you help us to hear from you? To recognize where we've placed ultimate weight in something that's only ever intended to be temporal? Where we've grown tired of your leadership? where our abundance has given us the freedom in our minds to create our own pathway and ignore yours. And so God, would you just speak into our hearts, because all of us uh, have different ways where this is happening in us. So by grace, would you show us?